Hi, this is John Stone from 10,000 Blades, and you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, streaming live at newhavenindependent.org. All the best of food and drink, a glass of wine, a smile, a wink, don't have a cow, don't make a stink, it's Lucy and the kitchen sink. Hey, New Haveners, and welcome back to another episode of Kitchen Sink. I'm your host, Lucy Gelman, and today I'm here with a guest whose work goes into not only food security, but its intersection with theater and the world of magical realism at times. So I'm very excited. My guest is Josh Wilder. Josh is a playwright from Philadelphia. His work has been developed at the Fire This Time Festival, Playwright Center, Pillsbury House and Theater, the History Theater, New York Theater Workshop, the Drama League, Company One, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and the O'Neill National Playwrights Conference. He is a former Jerome Fellow and Many Voices Fellow at the Playwright Center and has been in residence at the Royal Court Theater. I know him through his work as an MFA candidate at the Yale School of Drama, where his show Salt, Pepper, Ketchup was performed last year. I can't believe it was last year, actually. Last year, no. <laughs> um, so Josh, welcome to kitchen sink. That was, um, I'm, I'm humbled to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm humble too. Um, this is exciting. So, uh, this show is, I think most interested in the intersection of food and other things. Yeah. So I, I do want to get into the intersection of food and theater, which is something you do so deeply and so richly in your work. But first I want to hear about you. Can you tell me about growing up in Philadelphia and, and what that was like? Because, so much of your work is situated in that world. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm a middle child um, and I grew up in South Philly off of 23rd and Federal. Um, Philly is a uh, it was it was a wonderful place. Um, but Philly was also like very like segregated. So there's like the black neighborhood. Then you have the Italian neighborhood. Then you have the Vietnamese neighborhood. Then you have the Cambodian neighborhood. Then you have all these things. So but we never really like thought of it. Um, we, ne- we never really like felt the segregation of the city because that's just where, you know, it's a grid. So Philly's a grid. So it didn't matter um, where you walked. You just knew, you know, that broad street was 14th street, mm. <laughs> the other streets, other streets. But um, I actually had a great um, childhood in Philly. I uh, was a library kid. There was a library on 22nd and federal. And I live on 23rd. So I literally would walk up the street every day and go to the library and just sit there and read and, you know, there's so many books and yeah, so I was like a, a big library nerd and um, I actually started getting into theater because I won a lottery um, to go to a performing arts charter school. Okay, wait. So tell me about this. Yeah. So um, I went to Catholic school my whole life. Okay. Um, well, from uh, first grade to fourth grade, I went to Catholic school and I really liked Catholic school. That's amazing. You're yeah. the first person ever I've heard <laughs> to like Catholic school. I did. I mean, I liked the discipline of Catholic school. I, I liked the meticulous things like you know like with definitions we had to like underline the definition with like a red pen with a ruler it was very meticulous very regimented yeah yeah. and and i kind of like that structure and um but the summer after i finished fourth grade i was 10 years old and my mom like bust in the house screaming and i'm like why is she screaming and she was like you won the lottery and i was like i won the lottery for what and then she showed me this um newspaper clipping of this new performing arts charter school that was opening up um and i was 
the second to last person to win the lottery. Oh, wow. So I was the first class, um, first fifth grade class of the Philadelphia Performing Arts Charter School. And that fall, I, I came in there and uh, it was like my world was flipped upside down. Um, my mom knew that there was something special about me, but she couldn't really uh, figure out what it was. So she thought, oh, maybe he'd go into performing arts and he'll find his way there. Because I was a really quiet, shy kid. Mm. And um, so my first day at the school, I was measured for violin. Um, we did ballet, visual arts, we spoke French, we did vocal music. So I was like thrown into the world of art at a very early age. And then uh, it just kind of developed from there. And then um, in seventh grade, they introduced a theater program. Oh. And uh, I was playing the cello at the time and doing ballet. So I was like, I want to be a ballet dancer. I want to be like a cellist. <laughs> And then my mom was like, no, you're dramatic. Do, do theater. Well, <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I mean, I, but I do want to ask about this um, kind of inherent tension that's surfacing, even as you're describing like what sounds like a, a very magical childhood. Yeah. Um, so in, I know in New Haven, the charter school lottery is something we talk about, something people at the independent write about. And um, there are never enough spots for yeah. deserving students. Yeah. And so did you also see attention emerging maybe in your family, in your extended family, in your friend groups as you were in this school and, um, and kind of working through, do I want to be a cellist? Do I want to, do I want to dance? Um, yeah. you know, even speaking French, which is something that I think, um, a lot of maybe students and also parents think of as, um, like, like one of the older world yeah. languages. Yeah. It, it was interesting because, um, you know, I would be this kid walking around in South Philly with a violin case and everyone's like, who is this weirdo with this violin case? And what, what's in that case? Number mm. one, like, is he a desperado or is he a musician? <laughs> so um, I definitely uh, felt that that otherness um, in my community at the time. But I also was of the community at the same time. So I would put my violin down. And I play football in the street. Yeah. So I was always uh, I was always um, my family always reaffirmed to me that I'm not better than anybody mm. in the neighborhood. And that's how you stay humbled. And that's how you actually stay safe. Yeah. Well, and so tell me more about your family. Like, like paint a picture of what this looked like. You said you're the, the middle of three. Yeah, I'm the middle of three boys. Um, my oldest brother, he went through Catholic school all the way. Okay. And, uh, he actually uh, went to college um, at Westchester University um, for aviation. Um, and my little brother, uh, he went to an, another charter school and he actually, you know, liked cooking. So now he's a chef at a restaurant in Philly. And my mom, you know, she went to Bach Vocational High School. My mom has a vocational uh, background and she actually um, worked as a sewer, um, an industrial sewer for the government when they were um, when they were still like sewing American flags at the Navy Yard um, down down near uh, Columbus Boulevard. And my dad is a truck driver. So I kind of come from like a middle class blue collar yeah. family. And um, my stepfather was a contractor. So we really were a hands on family. We used to um, I used to help my my uncle over the summer put up sheetrock when I was like nine years old. And he had me climb a ladder on a roof. So I always was surrounded by a working class family. And we never really, you know, had that much. I mean, we always like kept our head, our heads above water. and um, it was there was always an emphasis on hey when you turn 15 when you're like legal to work you want to work a job and make your own money so i was always being prepared to be independent even from a young age 
So you know, even when I was in high school, um, I had to work at 15. I worked, I never had, I always kept a job at 15. Um, but my family, they were just, you know, they were very supportive of me. They, I never, I never felt like, uh, my brothers were jealous of me or anything like that. They just knew that I was just different and they knew that there was something that they just knew, you know, I was just like sensitive kid who like always cried and they were like, why is this kid always freaking crying? And, <laughs> and I think my mom knew that I had so much to say, mm. but I also had a really bad stutter when I was a kid. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's, that's interesting. One of the things that, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about as you're talking about your childhood is I think that in your work, which deals with magical realism some yeah. of the time, a lot, a lot of the time, you're still very interested in having a depiction of characters that is faithful to reality in which your characters do not become stereotypes in any way, shape yeah. or form. Yeah. And one of the, one of the things that you pay attention to is um, not the idea of patois, but mm-hmm. um, but speech and yes. being true to speech and dialectical patterns in your work. Yes. But then also um, really making sure, OK, it, would this actually happen? Would this actually unfold on a street in Philadelphia? So do you feel that that background sort of shaped you and sculpted you once you started to commit your thoughts to the page? Yeah, definitely. Because it's um, I was a listener as a child. So I always listened to people. I, I rarely spoke a lot because I was scared. I was stut- I, w- mm. I would stutter. So I was always listening to people and like people on the street, my neighbors, my family, um, anyone who just needed to talk to somebody. Because I realized when I was a young kid, I was like, why are all these people walking up to me and just talking to me? Because I was just quiet confidant that I was projecting that I was a quiet confidant and people really took that on. So um, something about um, for me that I'm really um, uh, I guess strict about is, is language and the musicality of language. Um, I do believe that the voice is a human, it is an instrument. Like everyone's voice is an instrument, whether you can sing or not. And the words that we say and how we say them all is a part of the music that we have within us. So I love music and I think learning how to play violin and actually learning those instruments really helped me be, um, attuned to, what are the sounds of Philly? And in my work, I'm all about real people encountering magical circumstances and how do they deal with that and how mm. do they how do they figure that out and how do they still stay grounded in reality but still kind of have this belief in this like numinous air, this like numinous cloud that's above them. Yeah. Um, because in Philly, you know, I grew up in a in a neighborhood with a lot of abandoned buildings and a lot of empty lots and a lot of broken glass on the floor on, on the pavement. So I was always in my head creating these like ghost stories. Cause um, I actually lived next to an abandoned house. Um, but before it was abandoned, I met the man who lived there before. Mm. So the man, uh, Mr. His name is Mr. Mitten. Uh, that was his nickname, Mr. Mitten. That's he, a great name. And he drew, and he drove like a little, like uh, a brown Honda, a brown Honda. And he was like 99 and he was always like driving his car. And we were always like, why is Mr. Ben driving his car? He's told, he can't see. But when he died, you saw this like ghost story happen because mm. the funeral happened and his family left and they abandoned the house. And every day I would uh, look at the house next to me, you know, cause we had porches and our, all of our porches were connected. And I was like, Oh man, Mr. Mitten's in there. And then when you, uh, we just created these ghost stories in our brain about Mr. Mitten. Um, yeah. Well, and there is, I mean, even in New Haven, and, and we'll talk about sort of 
being in New Haven and, and what that means for you. But even in New Haven, there is this sense of, you know, sort of a, a still life when you pass a lot of foreclosed homes. I'm thinking yeah. of walking along Gough Street, sort of past the armory. So you're across from DeGale Field and often there are kids playing. And yet on your left, you see foreclosed homes where the air conditioner has been left exactly where it yep. was. Um, and, and those homes are now abandoned. And, yep. and so you sort of create these stories in your head because you can't help but wonder what what did this family look like or or what did this person look like before they left? What what were their last moments in this house? Yeah. And the house becomes a character within that. Yes, it does. And even the even a lot, even when the house is demolished, mm. there's still bits of the house that are in the ground. Like I remember we used to go into the uh, empty lot on our block. And we would find like toys and we would find like a picture. And then when you look to the side of the house, you know, um, you know, us Philly's a bunch of row homes. So once a house gets torn down, you can see the actual like steps that are in the side of the wall. Um, and you always should figure out, okay, who, who lived there and who lived above the steps. And we always made these things in our head. Me and my friends always made these things in our head. And, um, I think that's the, the magic that's, I think that's how I started to develop my idea of magical realism mm. is really figuring out what happened before, this house became rubble and who lived in this house before it became rubble and actually playing and, and like playing in that rubble. Am I absorbing something? Am I like walking on someone? You know, am I walking through someone's bedroom in an empty lot? Like, like what am I doing here? So it was, I was always um, interested in this like inherent spirit around abandoned nests, things around abandoned things. Like I think um, I, I love collecting typewriters. And I feel like there's always a spirit in the typewriter because someone mm. has touched the typewriter before yeah. and has has really cried over it and been stressed over a typewriter. So I love collecting typewriters and see what kind of writer that person was when I work on it. Yeah. So I, I want to get into Leftovers, which is yeah. the show that's going to be premiering at, is it stage one? In uh, Boston? Company one in Boston. Company one. I was almost there <laughs> in Boston. Um, but before that, I, I just want to return to the fact that you kind of were painting this uh this orchestra this orchestra that is philadelphia yes you know in the past year i've had two very different experiences there i had one experience where i was visiting a girlfriend who lives downtown and mm -hmm. it was um i think this very like sanitized tour of philadelphia where i spent way more money in one weekend than i had intended to mm -hmm. and then i um was doing some reporting from the democratic national convention earlier this year and was staying with a friend who just moved to West Philly. Mm -hmm. And um, and it it was a much richer experience. The food I ate was better. Yeah. It came from more multicultural sources. I I was like, oh, there is functioning public transit and it's really <laughs> exciting. Yeah. Um, and, and the people I talked to were so much more interesting. There really was kind of this idea of a human mosaic. And so... Yeah. I'm I'm interested in not only the oral A U R E L orchestra that you may have experienced, um, and the kind of this idea of of this human orchestra, but any culinary orchestra because Philadelphia has so many different nationalities within yeah. it. Yes, I okay the culinary orchestra. Woo! There is so much food in Philly. I um I think we're really big on sandwiches. That's the thing. Like, yeah, you come to Philly, you gotta get a cheese steak. Um, everyone has their different places to go um and then uh you know there's always like a okay so basically like in my neighborhood and and so in and point breeze um 
you know, you go to the you go to the poppy store, which is usually like a corner store, a, a, bod- a bodega. But we call it a poppy store um, because they were the only like um, Latinos in the neighborhood. So we call it a, you, go, you go to a poppy store, you go in the back, get you a cheesesteak. They they hook it up real good. They they, they like learn how to make the cheesesteak because everyone was coming in there telling them how to do it. Um, you know, and then we had, you know, all the Hearst chips and the tasty cakes and all the candy. And then on 22nd and Ellsworth, uh, there's the Chinese, uh, the Chinese joint, the Chinese joint. See, I call it like a Chinese joint because a joint is a, a a joint is a noun for all the folks who aren't from Philly. But we'll get into it. Yeah. We'll get into the, <laughs> sort of the world around salt, pepper, ketchup, because I want to talk about that. Yeah. Too. So, you know, we would go to the, you know, the um, the Chinese joint and there will be, you know, I mean, we have the chicken wings, the fried rice, you know, all, all the food you wanted. And um, and it was cheap um, and full of sodium. Uh, <laughs> which everyone loves. And then, uh, but if you go to the Italian neighborhood, you have primo hoagies, you have the hoagie, the, the Italian food. So you have the hoagies and you have the stuffed shells and you had the bakery is grows on, um, I think 11th and Catherine. And then, uh, there's the Reading terminal market where it's every, everything, everything yeah. is there. I mean, and I truly didn't know who, what, who and what Amish people were until I went to the Reading terminal. Cause I was like, who are these where these like people look like pilgrims, <laughs> you know, that was like the, the running joke. Right. And, but then when you go and actually like buy their food, it's amazing. Yeah. So Philly is a cultural explosion of everything. And then when you go to North Philly around, around Burke street, you have the bodegas that actually do serve Latin food. Mm-hmm. So I think every section of Philly, you know, there's North Philly, West Philly, South Philly, Northeast Philly, there's, um, Fishtown, Northern Liberties, um, Kensington. There, every section of Philly has its own kind of cuisine, where we all kind of share the same kind of vibes. Like every every neighborhood in Philly has a bodega, has a Chinese store, um, and then there might be you know there might be a Jamaican spot that I haven't found yet, but I know they're out there. Um, there might be um, you know other like uh, more international cuisine places. But it's all relatively cheap and all relatively good. And it, when you go to Philly, you have to take a food tour of Philly. Um, But so I'm going to say the best cheesesteak place for me is Max's on Broad and Airy. Um, People like Paz and Gino's, but I'm not really a cheese whiz fan. Like I don't like cheese on my cheesesteak. I like Mm -mm. slices of cheese Mm -mm. or Tony Luke's in South Philly or Chickies and Pete's. You can go Chickies and Pete's. Um, Yeah. So Philly is, Philly tastes so good. And and did you, I mean, did that sort of, did those flavors sort of coalesce in your home? Like, mm-hmm. tell me, so uh, you mentioned that your brother was a chef. Did all of you find yourself cooking? Did your mom find we herself cooking? We all had to cook. Okay. My mom had two jobs my whole life. I never knew her without one job. So my mom would cook and we would, we would stand in the kitchen and watch her cook everything and learn. And one time, there was a day where my mom bought all this food, but then she had to go to work. Mm. And I was like, I'm hungry. And then she was like, well, cook something. And then I was like, oh, God, like, I don't know how to cook. And um, I mean, I've seen it, but I actually never practiced it. So then I called my Uncle Mike on the phone. And I was like, Uncle Mike, you teach me how to cook? And he literally taught me how to cook over the phone. Oh, wow. So I was like cooking over the phone. You know, I was cooking while he was being, I was being coached over the phone. And it was really good. So I like I learned how to cook through through watching my mom and and, and being instructed by Uncle over the phone. So we always... We always cooked in the house and um, I have yet to find those flavors um, 
in different parts of the country. Um, I hate the fake cheesesteaks that people sell. I can tell. Because it's something about, you know, they call it a Philly steak. And I'm like, oh, like once they call it a Philly steak, it's like, okay, that's <laughs> that's not, you know, that, that's not the thing. Yeah. <laughs> and did you, I mean, did you, one of the things I've, I've talked about with several people on the show before is um, food insecurity, which is a huge yeah. issue in New Haven, but also in major metropolitan areas such yes. as Philadelphia. And so did you have a sense of being either food secure or food insecure or your friends being food secure, food insecure, around you when you were growing up or was that not really part of the picture i didn't get a sense of my food security until i actually went to college because mm. then when i went to college um, i went to carnegie mellon um in pittsburgh and once i started um experiencing different classes because you know um my whole life experience before i went this um college was everyone's middle class or everyone's like almost near poverty. So that was like, and that was everybody. It wasn't just uh, my black friends. It was like my Italian friends, my Cambodian, it was everybody, everybody, you know, was middle class. It wasn't until I got to college where I started to, you know, learn about quinoa and like learn about kale um, and you know, learn about all the, all those, like the, the taste of fresh fruit and fresh vegetables um, and how much they cost. Um, because there was the path mark um, right on Grace Ferry Avenue. So I lived like a half a mile from the grocery market. I mean, the, you know, the uh, supermarket. So, you know, I never um, thought about food that way. I knew that my mom bought the food and she, we ate it and, you know, everything was cool. It wasn't until I started buying my own groceries that I realized how expensive food, mm -hmm. how expensive good quality food can be. And I didn't realize that I was eating the bad stuff. I was eating the stuff that wasn't as healthy for me. Um, but besides candy and cakes and chips and stuff like that, but like actual like food that was full of nutrition, I didn't know until I started buying my own groceries. Well, and, and people stigmatize bad food. That's, yeah. you know, that's something that Lucy Nolan, who's the head of End Hunger Connecticut, talks about. People stigmatize bad food. And, um, and, and that can be really injurious to people who grew up eating a certain way because yeah. immediately they're being vilified for the choices that they've made and the, the things, the sustenance that they have put into their bodies. Yeah. But I think back then we didn't know that there was an other, that we didn't know that there was an alternative, right. you know, um, whole foods didn't become a thing until I was like 17. Right. So we never knew those stores, those health food stores were not in our reach right. in our community. And we actually, supported more local businesses um at that time but we 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 didn't know about whole foods we didn't know about super super fresh just started and it was really expensive and it was in west philly at the time so we just thought you know like it was a luxury to go to super fresh right um it was a luxury to go to whole foods um my mother never went to whole foods i went to whole foods but i think at that time like those high end grocery stores were a luxury and, and we didn't, you know, we, we couldn't afford the luxury all the time. Um, and that's just unfortunate. But um, I know that when, when my mother was growing up, there wasn't, there were, there was no such thing as luxury food right. or luxury produce or <laughs> luxury supermarkets. It was just the market. So this is a, I, I feel like a perfect segue into talking about salt, pepper, ketchup and where that 
world collides very, um, you know, in a very real way with yeah. the world of your playwriting and, and yeah. the work that you do. So before that, I just want to remind listeners that you're listening to Kitchen Sink on WNHHLP 103.5 FM New Haven. I'm Lucy Gelman, your host, and my guest today is Josh Wilder, who is uh, talented in so many ways and currently an MFA candidate at the Yale School of Drama. So, Josh, I want to talk about salt, pepper, ketchup, and then we'll get into leftovers, which cool. is a, a very, very exciting work. Um, salt, pepper, ketchup, as I kind of got acquainted with it last year, was a show that took place in um, Point Breeze, Yes, which is uh, so kind of point breeze as people, as, as white people are starting to move in as the neighborhoods becoming gentrified Mm -hmm. and folks are calling it new bold. Yes. Which I found really, really interesting. Um, there's no, um, complete analog in new Haven, but you definitely see that in certain neighborhoods of the city. Um, and, uh, and the conflict at the center of the show when I saw it. So when it was a one act Mm -hmm. was (laughs) the fact that there is this co-op with, you know, fancy organic kale and quinoa and like $3 apples um, moving into a neighborhood. And there is a Chinese joint Mm -hmm. sort of on the corner and they're really worried about their economic future. What's going to happen. They've been there for years and years and years. They have their faithful patrons and all of a sudden that's thrown into question um, in, in sort of a very ugly way. Yeah. And, and so since it's become a five act. Yes. So, so tell me a little bit about the evolution of that show and, and also the genesis of it. How, how was it born? Okay. Well, um, it was born from my, uh, I had a really visceral reaction. Um, after I saw Clyborne park mm. at the Guthrie, it was my, it was in two, uh, I think Clyborne park became a huge commercial success in 2012, I believe. And, and we should say, so Clyborne park kind of takes, Raisin in the uh, Lorraine Hansberry's Raisin in the Sun and uh, turns it into a story about a white family. I think I read it and I said, "Why the f did this get a Pulitzer?" So I'm I'm interested in in <laughs> yeah. your reactions when you actually saw the show in 2012. Yeah, well, when I saw the show in 2012, um, I was probably one of like few black people in the audience at the Guthrie, um, and it was a packed house. I mean, this was a sold out run. Yeah, and. Uh, when I was watching, it, I was like, "Oh, this is a really cool like ghost story." Because it it, start, mm. it starts off as a ghost story. I mean, you, you see this family, this like you know family during like I think right after W two, they're in Clyburn Park, they're figuring things out, and they're I think a son like kills himself. So then you're watching the evolution of this like ghost story happen in this house, and then you see the, um, this the the beginning stages of like white flight. And then the second act, the house is now being reclaimed by um, um, the white people who flew, who like fled before. So you have this thing, this like, uh, the house was originally, after the white flight, a black family came in, the, you know, um, the, the, uh, the, the younger family, yes, yeah. the younger family came in, right? And now they're moving out. And now, you know, a white family, a white couple's coming in. Probably affluent. Like, yeah, affluent yeah. white couple is coming in. Or just have more. Have, um, probably a different class are coming yeah. in. And then they get into this huge argument about race and, and gentrification at the very, like, last moments of the play. And I'm watching this thing, and I'm listening to everybody. And... You know, uh, the white characters are talking about uh, they're talking about gentrification. They're like 
talking so much that they end up talking at me mm. and end up talking at the black characters and the black characters that are listening to this like rant about gentrification and how whiteness and gentrification intersect. The black characters aren't talking. They're just listening and they're brooding. And then they finally like pop off and then it plays over. And I was in the audience and I, I left the play and every, you know, everyone's like excited, laughing, really having a good time. And I'm sitting there and I was like, wow, this play about gentrification was not for me. This play, it, it wasn't for me. It was, it was the people who actually go into these neighborhoods and, and actually buy these new properties and who are developing these properties. So I was like, okay, this is another side of, of gentrification that I'm just now hearing right. about. And I kind of felt like as a playwright, um, I've personally felt like that was irresponsible playwriting um, only because the, if, there wasn't a clear picture of race and representation on stage. Yes. And I said, you know what? I'm going to write a play about the gentrification that I know. And it's going to be multiracial. And I'm going to have, I'm going to write Chinese characters for the first time. I want to write white characters for the first time. And I'm going to make sure that everyone has their own viewpoint of it. I'm, I want to create a world in which everyone thinks that they're right. And, and I think you do a very fair, or at, at least in, in what I saw. And so of course it's changed, I yeah. assume a great deal. Um, but one thing that I was so struck by was the nuance and grace with which you wrote every single character um, yeah. and, and kind of um, making sure that, you, you know, for instance, we maybe in some ways are poised to hate the white character who is coming into a neighborhood until mm -hmm. he breaks down and says, I'm really sorry. I don't like the fact that I'm doing this. It's the only job that would hire me. Yeah. I can only pay rent in this neighborhood. I don't really know what I'm doing. And I feel like crap about the possibility of putting you out of business. And you have this moment of like, oh, there is some humanity in this person. Yeah. And he's not completely going with the white savior narrative. Yeah, he's not. Um, because, you know, I, I do come from a predominantly black neighborhood, but my world, my world, I have a, you know, I'm, my worldview is not all just black. My worldview is everything. I'm, 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 you know, I have friends from all different demographics and all different parts of life. And, and I, I travel a lot. And so I don't have a, I don't have a, um, I, I never want to represent anyone as a villain on stage. Mm -hmm. Um, because I know that when I was living on my own and, going to different um, parts of the country. Like, you know, when, when I lived in Minnesota, I mean, I lived in a, I lived in a gentrifying neighborhood at the time. I didn't know. Cause you know, my rent started getting raised. And I was like, Oh snap, this is <laughs> happening. And I did shop at the health foods co-op because it was a local business mm -hmm. that supported local farms and it was a little bit expensive, but you know, I wasn't making the money at the time to afford the food. Right. So I was always, you know, I, I thought that me doing that was in a way like culturing myself to different to you know different foods and different th uh, different things. So I'm, I'm always culturing myself in the, in the best way possible. And it wasn't until I got into the workshop of salt, pepper, ketchup at the Playwright Center that um, I said, OK, I you know, and I told the actor, I said, hey, listen, I'm writing these these characters really raw right now and I need help developing them. And it, it it's the actor working with the actor 
working with the white actors and the Chinese actors and they're going, okay, I have questions about this. This doesn't, this doesn't feel right to me. I feel this way. I feel that way. And really listening to them, you know, a lot of, a lot of theater is about listening. Writing plays is about listening. Acting is about listening. You have to listen um, because there's truth when you listen to people. Yeah. And, and, and really, um, and when you're crafting a role around a, a specific actor, that's not of your culture that's not of your um, class. You really have to put your biases to us to, uh, to the side and really get to the core and the soul of the human being. And I never wanted to do what Clyburn Park did in terms of representing someone in a very narrow way. And I'm, so I'm, I'm curious about the fact that, um, so this, this show mm-hmm. uh, that we're talking about salt, pepper, ketchup has um has a a very strong Chinese woman yes in it and so was that just a product of listening and rewriting and editing and rewriting some more yes and also like you know um the the um you know salt pepper ketchup is set in my neighborhood right so I know I know them right they they've seen me go in their store from ten to eighteen it's been eight years of seeing the same people listening to them ordering food for them talking to them on the phone for an order you know, supporting their business. So I've, I know the people that I was writing. I, I never want to write someone that I don't know or haven't mm. met before. And, and then also with you. So, um, when I saw the show, I was so struck by the use of food mm-hmm. as a vehicle to show, uh, sort of the havoc, havoc, excuse me, that gentrification can wreak on a neighborhood. Yeah. Um, and, but also how it's complicated. Like food is really, really complicated. Is complicated. Money is really, really complicated. Mm-hmm. And so did you go into it saying, I, I know that I want to position it between these two basically eating establishments or, yeah. or food establishments or, um, or were there multiple vehicles that you looked at when you were thinking of, of sort of how, like how to, how to position the show? I think there were mul- multiple vehicles um, because, you know, my neighborhood is being, uh, is, is being gentrified right now. And, um, drastically, it's kind of creepy. Um, it's just jarring. I think, um, I understand it, but it's it's just jarring. Um, but when I was walking around my neighborhood and seeing all the new houses pop up and all my neighbors move out, the bodegas and the Chinese joints stayed. And the new neighbors were now their patrons. And I was like, wow, okay, all the black people are leaving my neighborhood, but the immigrant store owners are staying. And I was like, why haven't all the black businesses stayed afloat? Hmm. And a part of me was just curious, like, what would happen if gentrification came inside the Chinese store and really threaten them like what would they do because in a way like the chinese joint and the and the, and the bodega on the poppy store i call it you know they are a part of our community because they feed us so there's a loyalty to them and i always was curious if that loyalty was just the fact that we kept their business open or was their loyalty really to the community hmm. um so that's where the initial question came from for me to write the play. It was loyalty. 
And do you feel like in expanding the show to five acts? So I, I mm-hmm. have not seen the five act work. Yeah. I would love to at some point. Yes. Um, but do you feel like in expanding that show, you were able to answer some of those questions for yeah, yourself? I was, um, I, for me, um, you know, the immigrant business owners who have their stores in the black neighborhoods, they are in this middle position, right? They're, for me, just looking at everything, it seems like they're the ones that are floating in the middle mm. and they have to go with whatever, the, wherever the tide takes them. So, yes, they are loyal to the community because they know us. They have our pictures in their stores. They know us by name. Yet they don't live in our community. They live somewhere else. They live in a different community. Um, some of them live in New Jersey. So. You know, it's just business. It's just business. Yeah. And and that was the hard the hard thing I had to realize after I finished the play, the five act. I was like, this is just business, and this is just this is just someone who is trying to get their American dream. This is someone who is just trying to stay afloat. This is someone who is just trying to provide for themselves and their families and the future generations of their families, and and that comes at a price. Yeah. Well, and and you've talked about how um, you see the role of the artist or the creative as a role that can step into activist and, and advocate yes. very, very easily. And, and the two really can be intimately mm-hmm. intertwined. And that's something that one sees in salt, pepper, ketchup. It's also something one sees in leftover. So I, I want to get yeah. into this show that's going to be premiering next year at company one in Boston, but is going through, as I understand it, a series of workshops. Yeah. It's, um, Oh man, I've been working on leftovers since 2012. Wow. So this is, it'll be five, you know, uh, Robert O'Hara told me that uh, it takes five years to make a play. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I've been, I've been working on this play for, uh, since 2012 uh, when I came back from studying abroad in South Africa. Um, and it's my first play and it has uh the character of Cliff Huxtable in it. And it kind of unpacks this idea of what Cosby show happiness is. And the play is so ironic now (laughs) because of everything. Um, But when I was writing it, it wasn't about that at the time. It was just about, you know, I grew up on reruns of the Cosby show and I, I wanted to be this Cosby kid and watching that show every day and seeing black people in those positions and the fact that they were up, they were upper class and they were self-sufficient and the mom was a lawyer and dad was a doctor and the kids went to great schools. I always pictured myself in, in that position that that was something that I wanted for my future. Um, and a lot of my friends wanted for their futures and, and even our parents wanted for our futures. So there was just always this, like this, nuclear black family that people have never seen before that America has never seen before on television. And we were also in this, you know, the nineties or late eighties, it was the age of like the family shows. You had the Cosby show, you had family matters, you had brothers Garcia, you had all of these like families um, of people of color and they actually were doing okay. They weren't struggling. They weren't doing this. They actually were like living the American dream and, and their own right. And every episode 
it was a lesson that the adults have teach to their children. So I was always being taught a lesson by every rerun of the Cosby show to the point where it kind of like permeated into my like subconscious in my psychology of the kind of person that I want to be. Mm. So this, uh, um, this idea of, of, of that, that Cosby show happiness juxtaposed with me living in inner city Philadelphia and being like a low middle class, uh, black person and learning how to navigate that. It was always something that just rubbed up against my idea of environment and the fact that I can live in this environment, but I don't have to be of this environment. And do you still feel, because I, I think the idea of having that sort of aspirational vision yeah. that is informed by pop culture um, and, and then that suddenly still becomes timely, even though you don't expect it to, yeah. even though you expect it to kind of be fixed in the 80s and 90s. I just reread Other People's Money, um, mm-hmm. which was written in 1989 uh, and adapted to a film in 1991. And it's kind of about these voracious and very oily wall street uh bankers and and stockholders and and traders um and you don't expect it to still be topical and yet it is yet it is um and and so i'm I'm hearing that for this show or this play as well um so when you when you started it did you just start sort of at square one yeah i started at square one i um what's funny is that um um you know i was in i was finishing Carnegie Mellon at the time. And they were always telling us to do our own work and write our own things. They were like, Hey, like if you want to be an actor, then you got to write your own stuff. You got to be a writer too. So I was always being taught to write or told to write. Mm. I never took a writing class at school. And did you not think, I mean, going back to the Mm -hmm. fact that you went through this performing arts charter, did you not think about um, playwriting? I thought about playwriting. Well, what's so funny is that I actually met playwriting through performing in, in my first play that I wrote. So when I was in seventh, so the summer when I started seventh grade, my um, sixth grade teacher actually invited me to um, join this writing group, this um, after school program that she was creating. Um, and she actually taught us how to write a play in a community center in South Philly. And then the play that we wrote was the first play that I actually was in. So I met writing and acting at the same exact time. Yeah. And sometimes those are very compatible. I mean, yeah. you, you know, because you're sort of um, writing your character into existence and then sometimes yeah. embodying that character. Yeah. Um, and I, I see a lot of that in your work. Um, so getting into leftovers, yes. because I, I want to make sure we have enough time to talk about this show. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a lot of magical realism yeah. in this show. Um, it begins sort of on this quiet street there's a woman up in her room. You don't think anything uh, crazy is going to happen. And then this big flower <laughs> drops from the sky. Yeah. I, I, um, and, and the first reaction of everyone in the house, I love this so much, is like, I hope that no one's effing with us, basically. Like, yeah. like they better not be sending people in here to, you know, to collect money or anything like that. Like, yeah. Um, and, and so there's there's none of this like, Oh yeah, a flower fell from the sky. This is weird. Like, there's no acknowledgement of um, the strangeness and magic to begin with, and I love that. I yeah. love it so much. Um, but then it becomes this sort of Jack in the Jack in the Beanstalk. Yes, Jack, Jack and the Beanstalk. Jack and the Beanstalk. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's been a long time since childhood. Um, 
turned on its head yeah. a little bit. Yeah, I um, yeah, a, a giant dandelion grows through the sidewalk. It's like boom, right? But I've always seen weeds grow into trees in my neighborhood. I mean, there are weeds that grow through houses. So that wasn't magical to me. That was just real to me. But I always realized that in these like empty lots, whatever, there were always dandelions. Mm. And as a kid, I would make wishes on them because that we were t- that's how we were taught to treat them as if they were wishes. So then I said, oh, snap. What if a giant dandelion grows through the sidewalk? Right. What does that mean? Like, does it mean your wish will come true if that happens, if, if you catch one? So that's kind of where it came from. That was like, oh, snap, what if a giant dandelion grows through the sidewalk? Um, and that's kind of where the impulse of the play came from. And then everything kind of just fell into place after I figured out what was the 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 huge magical event that happened that kind of starts the play. Yeah. Um and then as I kept writing it, um, you know, I realized that there were two brothers and they loved the Cosby show and they wanted to be Cosby kids and they were wishing for these abstractions like Cosby show happiness. And they realized that it's not real. And they realized that their parents aren't Cliff and Claire Huxtable. Their parents, um, they're just regular people who are trying to figure out life. And it eventually became a coming of age story of where the boys realize that their parents are people. And that can be, I mean, that can be a really eye-opening moment. I think that uh, if not everyone, many of us have had Yeah. where all of a sudden one day you wake up and you realize, oh my goodness, before my mom was my mom, she, she was a person. Before my dad was my dad. He was a person. They, they had their own lives. They, loved before they loved each other perhaps they you know um they don't just exist in the silo anymore Um, but it can also be in some ways um kind of a crushing blow it is crushing because you're losing something that you had during your youth that was sort of a a little blanket and you know all of a sudden it gets pulled off and sometimes when it gets pulled off it can be very cold yeah it can be very cold um because i think as a as a kid you know we think that our parents are superheroes you know, our parents are our, our parents feed us, they clothe us, they make sure that we're safe, they take care of us. So they are this like, quote unquote, God in a way where, you know, they're Superman, they're Wonder Woman. They're these people who actually are making sure that we live. Right. And when you're of age and you're living, on, you know, and we are being um, groomed to live on your own, then and you come into your own self and then you realize like, okay, I, I'm a, I'm my own self. I'm an adult. Like once, once my mom was like, okay, you're an adult. You have a job now, make your own money, take care of yourself, pay your own bills, do this, pay your own food, do that. I was like, okay, I'm on my own. And I'm an adult. My mom's an adult, but she's my mom. <laughs> but, but my mom, my mom needs like 20 up, 20 bucks for gas. Right. And once I realized that once my parents started coming to me for just just little things like i need 20 bucks for it to fill my tank or can you get groceries today hey can you help with the with this um water bill can you help with this once you start doing adult once your parents start asking you to do adult things then this like separation happens mm-hmm. this like unveiling 
uh, unveiling happens where you're like, okay, my mom isn't Wonder Woman. My mom is just Ruth who works two jobs, who has all these bills, who is a woman in America trying to survive, who's a black woman in America trying to survive. Yeah. And you start to, all the layers of the onion start to peel. And do you, I mean, when you go home, yeah. because we're not that far from Philadelphia. No, and yeah. I, I know when I talked to you in uh, late July or early August, we just missed each other when I yeah. was coming into Philly and you were leaving. Yeah. Um. So how often do you go home? I go to Philly um, probably about like four times a year. Um, nice. I'm not there all the time. Like it's weird because like, um, you know, I think what I realized is that when I get older, my home isn't my home anymore. Mm. Um, it's my mom's home, not my home. And um, I, I would go to Philly for at least 12 to 36 hours. Then I'm out <laughs> because sometimes I just feel like a 12 year old again. When that I go back sounds home. familiar. Yeah. And, um, but I always make sure I see my family and my nephews and, you know, see friends I haven't seen. And we're just, I, I actually really like going back to Philly just to walk around Philly because yeah. you can you can truly walk all of Philadelphia and 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 be OK. So I like going home just to walk and just to, you know, just just be recharged because being in New Haven is is great. I love, um you know, I love I love this city in a way because it's. This is a, a transition part of my like adulthood and I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm like tr- transitioning to being like a 100% professional in the theater and you know I'm coming here to write more plays and learn about New Haven and seeing the connections that New Haven has to Philadelphia it's really interesting um so yeah I, I go to Philly like about three four times a year and I see my folks I see my best friend I make sure I get a cheesesteak when I go by there um and then I'm recharged and then I, I go back out into the world and go back to my little apartment yeah so I, I do want to, our time is winding down, yeah. but I, I do want to ask you about New Haven and kind of this idea of um, of home, even if it's a an in-between home. Uh, just to remind listeners, this is Kitchen Sink on WNHHLP 103.5 FM New Haven. I'm Lucy Gelman, your host, and today I'm talking to Josh Wilder, who's an MFA candidate at the Yale School of Drama. Josh, um, you've been so wonderful, and I just want to ask you, you know, there is this intersection um I, I think in New Haven, in a lot of urban areas right now in Detroit, which is where I'm from, yeah. um, where we're seeing gentrification and realizing that um, it's complicated. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really, really complicated. And so I'm, I'm interested in how New Haven has factored into the work that you're doing, what you're seeing, maybe what you're eating, what you're smelling. Yeah. Well, I, um, I live in Wooster Square. I live right around the corner from Pepe's Pizza. Oh, my gosh. So it's hard to, (laughs) you know, so, but, um, walking up chapel street is very interesting because I literally go through every class Mm -hmm. of America. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and there's sort of, um, one of the things we talk about in the office at the new Haven independent is there's this very interesting intersection at church and chapel yeah. where sort of all of these worlds come together. Yeah. It's people are trying to catch the bus. It's a mm-hmm. big hub for uh, what little uh, and sort of working mass transit we have in New Haven. Mm-hmm. Um, but also there are Yale students going to and from, for instance, Worcester square and also Elm city market, which used to be a co-op. Um, 
And, um, and, and so there are some people who look like, Oh, should I be here? I don't know if I should be here. Yale undergrads are told that they really shouldn't go Mm -hmm. to uh, anywhere close to the ninth square area of new Haven. Um, and, and then there are people who are like catching their bus. And then there are people who are watching all of this from, uh, the building across the street and, you know, the YMCA across the street. And so, um, for you, is that walk down chapel? Like, do you experience it every, every yeah. time you do it? I, it, it? It's, it's familiar to me because I'm from Philly. Um, and, and because I've been through different, you know, different uh, places in the country, but you know, I read that New Haven is a microcosm of America. Like every, everybody, every cl- everything is in New Haven. Yeah. It's all mushed together. And it's, it is weird. Like walking past the church that feeds the homeless in the morning and then getting on the shuttle to Yale and then walking up the street and seeing people of, of, of different classes just interact and intersect with each other. And I truly had to find um, my way around this thing. Um, I used to shop at Elm city all the time, but I was like, I can't afford Elm city. It's too expensive. Um, but then my friend, my old roommate who was a med student, who, who is a med student at Yale, he was like, Oh, go, go to Ferraro's. I'm like, where's Ferraro's? And and actually, I mean, that's yeah. the thing. Yale, I think, um, is not totally a villain, but maybe doesn't inform its students about the fact that, like, there is Fairhaven, and there's so yeah. much food in Fairhaven, actually. Yeah. Um, and Ferraro's is sort of on the lip of that. It is, and I love Ferraro's. Go to Ferraro's, y'all. Support local businesses. Um, but <laughs> but it, what's funny is that Yale reminds me a lot of Temple University in Philly. Interesting. Where, you know... At the center is the university and then, but around the university, the gentrification is happening. The expensive food stores are happening and people are being pushed further and further and further out of their neighborhoods. So I had to draw those connections between Philly and, 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 and being in New Haven. And I, um, I'm still actually working out, um, this, this, this living in this microcosm of, of of being a privileged poor person mm. you know um i consider myself a, a privileged poor person you know I'm a, i don't come from a upper middle class background at all but i've done upper class things like you know that that are you know that that that, that other people might seem that is upper class like traveling and right. doing this and doing that um but, but that's how i've been able to just experience life that's my own personal experience like but it, it's not like i came i came from money but I had to find that and I had to find that. And I, had to, and I think when I was working in theater full time and making my own money and experiencing these different things that I was, I was always hearing about, I, you know, these are things that I adapted to and that I liked. So I think me turning on my street smarts, it's all about street smarts for me. You know, I'm coming to New Haven with a street smart mentality mm. and I'm not coming to New Haven as this, Oh, I, I know more things where I'm better than see, like, like I was saying before, I never walked around like I was better than anybody. Right. And that's has been my saving grace because um, it's a humbling experience walking through New Haven and figuring things out. I just realized that um, past shop and stop on Whaley's edge of the woods. So just like figuring out different places to eat in New Haven has been great. And to shop, you know, I finally found the food store that I can afford. Right. That that's you know that's actually really amazing to me, um, and I make sure I go there every week I can. So New Haven is is interesting, um, and the hoods of New Haven are are interesting too, and and also this idea of the hill in New Haven 
is really interesting because that was an affluent neighborhood and now it's more of a lower middle class neighborhood but they all i i, I think they all rent mm. around there so it's interesting seeing gentrification and how food intersects with that um it's really interesting seeing that yeah because what when, wherever there's a i know in philly wherever there's a a more of a health food store or where there's a there's a you know a market that's more a little bit upper class that's and that's the first indicator yeah. that the neighbor's going to change yeah so our time is up but uh. i uh, i know i know <laughs> it always goes too fast yeah um if people want to find you how can they do that um, they can go to my website, www.mrwilda.com, M-R-W-I-L-D-A-H, and they can find me on Twitter at um, Mr. Wilder, M-R-W-I-L-D-A-H. Beautiful. I'm Lucy Gelman. My guest today has been Josh Wilder. Josh, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lucy. I really had a good time. Take care. All right. I'm cold.